Whoa, that was weird. Bad, that was weird. All right. <laughs> Uh, well, hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And a moment of silence for Sam. Alas, poor Sam. We knew him well. We knew him well, but now we have been cast into the Samless void in which there is no light, only darkness sat- and sadness. But fans, don't leave quite yet. He will be back. He is. Uh, he's promised that he will return. He's going to prepare a place for us, and he went on a very long winded mm-hmm. rant that i really didn't remember it was kind of confusing yeah yeah something about a house with many rooms like i kind of tuned him out i was in the, i mean if know, i'm being completely honest i don't need that many rooms i'm not sure why he's going through all the trouble yeah it's kind of over dramatic if you ask me and it's all yeah. like you know like go and and you spread my name to every nation or something i like i was halfway down a, a, like a old-fashioned so like i really it, it all kind of went over my head i mean there went, came a point where i was just like dude you're 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 getting a little ahead of yourself a little full of yourself like we want to spread the good news of Sam. I don't get it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, yeah. So so Sam is gone for a while, uh, but he will be back. Uh, back he will be. Back he will be. Uh, but coming up, we have uh, for Stephen and myselves. Uh, we will be trying a bit of a new thing where we're only going to do half a chapter and try and do it a, a little bit speedier, a little bit, a uh, little bit um, more efficiently. Uh, I, I I say keeping the intro going for. I don't know, three minutes now. Uh, and also bringing on some random fun folks uh, from our friends from the internet that uh, we've never met in real life. Uh, we don't actually know who they are or where they come from, but they had some funny, you know, sort of, uh, you know, just like incredibly cynical and, you know, things that just really like drive your spirit down. And we thought, you know what, what better thing to do than to have them onto the podcast to do that uh, to all of you too. Life isn't depressing enough as it is, and so we figure that we're just going to kind of bring things down another couple of notches. Although, I'm interested, Brevin, uh, you did say in the real life, but I think the whole premise of this podcast is that we exist as radio waves in a dystopic future or something to mm-hmm. that effect. So I'm curious well, what you mean by real life. Well, I mean, is this the real life or is this fantasy? But that yeah, aside, um, I, that that was uh, what what we were in uh, prior to you guys saying, Hey, Brevin, you should update the description of this podcast. Cause whenever we send friends to this, uh, you know, friends that exist only in sound waves, of course, whenever we send friends to this, uh, they're super confused as to what you guys are doing. So, and thank uh, God you did, because it was a really confusing thing. Now people at least have some idea of what we're doing. Although I've had some people question like, which one are you, which I find <laughs> kind of funny. <laughs> that's, that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's excellent. Oh, yes. Um, uh, yes, I, well, I mean, the real problem is just that you guys uh, just l- let me do whatever I want with no supervision, which is never a good idea. Speaking of doing whatever you want with no supervision, Stephen, what are you drinking right now? Speaking of wonderful transitions, I am drinking a gin and tonic with a bit of lime in it. Mm, 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 mm. It is the uh, drink of champions. Also, apparently, of sociopaths. Uh, there is really? at least I. It's one of those like correlation causation or whatever, but uh, apparently, uh, gin and tonics are most preferred by sociopaths. So. That's me, apparently. I mean, that Along with makes... schizophrenia with philosophy and engineering, apparently. So I'm just I'm just racking up a whole host of psychopathies. <laughs> if we're honest, it's the tonic water. Like it doesn't taste good, and nothing you ever say will like say that this is a good compliment to any drink ever. You have the martini available to you, which is a far superior drink, oh. and it's also like 
this this uh you know like it's like light and darkness to uh yin and yang you have the manhattan on the one hand uh with you know uh sweet vermouth and bourbon and a cherry and then on the other hand you have the martini with dry vermouth gin and olives and it's it's just the, this perfect symmetry uh that that you know is at the very core of our civilization probably see the martini i mean the martini just feels like an olive somehow gained consciousness and then like punched you in the face whereas <laughs> the gin and tonic it, like it, it, it's kind of if it if it gained consciousness it would be like the playful flirty one that like delights you with its fizziness and that's that's i guess that's the kind of drink i'm going for if you want to be abused by your drinks i mean i'm not gonna say no but i just think you could do better I don't know. Like when uh, Chesterton talks about the gray-faced gin drinker, I'm pretty sure he's having a gin and tonic and not like a Manhattan or something. Touche. Um, but anyway, uh, as for myself, uh, need you ask, I am having bourbon neat. Uh, Good actually, man. Actually, just kidding. No, I, I'm having no. an, an old-fashioned uh, because I went to all the work relatively recently to make some simple syrup uh, with pepper flakes. And the only intent of said simple syrup is to injure you uh so i felt remiss not using it um so so, so that is what i'm having so what i'm hearing is that you're continuing in this cycle of getting into abusive relationships with your drinks absolutely uh but speaking uh well no you know what i'm just gonna say i i originally planned that bit as like a transition to something but it it doesn't make sense anymore so i'm just gonna none of your transitions make sense (laughs) <laughs> uh, well speaking of not making sense thank you for helping me out there but speaking of of, of not making sense i just i i, I just want to go on a pre-rant i think this is the first time that we've ever done this um Ooh, but it, it's relevant because i had to put on a band-aid like two seconds before we started recording which is i've been getting all these mysterious little cuts on on my thumb and then while i'm cooking i don't notice and they open up and i start like spilling blood all over the kitchen and it's just oh, it's, it, it's very very frustrating the only thing that I can think of is that I'm like touching paper and notebooks for the first time in like five years. So it it's probably paper cuts just like all, like all over my one thumb that I used to, to turn pages. Uh, it's either that, or it's a, um, it's like a demon leprechaun that's making tiny cuts in my skin, in my sleep, in just like a vain attempt to reach my golden bones. Uh, but who knows? Uh, also for those of you who get that reference, uh, good on you. Uh, but speaking of being good on you, I didn't plan this. Uh, Another seamless transition. I, I'm just yeah. going to take over and say that we're going to do The Primacy of the Right Hemisphere, Chapter 5 by Ian McGilchrist, the Master and His Emissary, first half. That was very out of order. That was very out of order. But we're going to push I, ahead. I give you a 3 out of 10. Wow, that bad, huh? Well, in any case, the first part of the first half of Chapter 5 of Master and His Emissary, The Primacy of the Right Hemisphere. So in this, McGilchrist opens up uh, by reminding us that there are two different worlds that are given to us, the left and the right. We've been over this many times, uh, but the fact of the matter is that we need to be able to synthesize these two uh, paradigms. Uh, the left does provide us with a clearer picture, um, one that is less engaged and more int- more abstract. And so kind of at first glance, it seems that this would be a pretty good candidate kind of for being the preferential image. Uh, but he does quip that uh, this is in some cases uh, more psychopathic. Uh, to have a clearer picture that is less engaged and more abstract with your uh, surroundings. Um, He does uh, suggest that one method of approach of kind of uh, gauging which hemisphere's vision of the world is going to be a better one to go about or uh, a better one to rely on. 
is uh, a results-based uh, schema. Uh, what happens when you adopt a more detached mode of attention versus versus a more engaged? However, he brackets that and says that he'll he's more interested in exploring that in the second half. Uh, he goes on a brief tri- diatribe, uh, reminding us of what we went over in the last chapter. Um, that philosophy of the 20th century points us back from the analytic and abstract to the engaged, empathic, and intersubjective attention to the world. Uh, he also notes that philosophy both begins and ends with wonder, and he'll he'll adopt this beginning and ending, this very circular structure. He'll adopt this over and over, both within histo- uh, history of philosophy, noting that the pre-Socratics led to the Socratics, led to the philosophy of the 20th century, pre-Socratics and 20th century being a lot more right-brain oriented, the middle part being a lot more left-brain. But just the practice of philosophy in, in general has a circular structure that begins and ends with wonder. Uh, quote, it begins in wonder, intuition, ambiguity, puzzlement, and uncertainty. It progresses through being unpacked, inspected from all angles, and wrestled into the linearity by the left hemisphere. But its end point is to see that the very business of language and linearity must themselves be transcended and once more left behind. Uh, he moves on uh, to discuss the evidence that has already been discussed uh, for the primary role of the right hemisphere or the, for the right hemisphere having the primary role. Uh, he goes on uh, to discuss the primary of broad vigilant attention. Uh, so the focused attention of the left hemisphere, while it is more narrowed in on something, it needs to know what like what options it has to begin with. If there wasn't for the broad attention, there wouldn't be options to select and there would be nothing to focus in on. Quote, focused attention may appear to its owner to be under conscious control. In reality, it is already spoken for. We direct attention according to what we are aware of. And for that, we need broad right hemisphere attention, end quote. Uh, he uh, discusses the primacy of wholeness, that something presents itself as a whole. It is the left that breaks things down to their constituent parts. The right is the one, or whatever comes to the right is itself complete. Uh, you can't break down something that is already broken down. It needs to be whole. Uh, the primacy, uh, primacy of experience, uh, the simple fact that everything we know arrives through the right hemisphere it's the broader attention and things present themselves to the right hemisphere uh quote the right hemisphere delivers what what is new as it presences uh before the left hemisphere gets to represent it uh again doing that interplay between present uh present and represent uh finally the primacy of means the left hemisphere's uh most powerful tool is referential language but language has its origins in the body and in the right hemisphere, uh, as he has already discussed. Uh, origins in the right hemisphere, it's still the left hemisphere um, is where language presides. But that's besides the point. Um, then he moves on to uh, his main talking points. Uh, the primacy of the implicit and the primacy, the primacy of affect will be what I go over. So first, uh, implicit. He notes that metaphorical meaning comes before abstraction and explicitness. Uh, that metaphor, quote, metaphor is not just a reflection of what has been, but the means whereby the truly new rather than just the novel may come about, end quote. Uh, metaphor generates new thoughts or understanding rather than cliche. Uh, cliche is just a dead historical remnant. Uh, philosophy's project itself is to get beyond what can be grasped or explicitly stated, uh, but it itself inevitably drifts towards the explicit getting trapped within itself. Uh, we should We should note that the implicit is what is given to us, and whenever we're trying to unfold it, you can only unfold something that, well, is folded. If something is already unfolded, you can't unfold it anymore, and that's that's one of the main issues with left hemisphere's explicit approach, is you can only unpack something so much. 
and note that you're not adding anything to the thing that you're unpacking. Uh, it only it, it stays self-referential. Uh, the philosophers that we studied in the last chapter, Malupanti, Heidegger, Scheller, and Wittgenstein, all realize this. Uh, the explicit ties us to what we know. Uh, we get lost in a maze of mirrors. Quote, each tried to take philosophy uh, beyond the explicit, uh, therefore, in a sense, beyond itself, end quote. Trying to escape this maze of mirrors, they all understood that the implicit was really important, that uh, staying within this analytical approach was just a way of kind of going in circles. So Wittgenstein also had some ra- some thoughts around this. Uh, quote, Wittgenstein speaks of philosophical inquiry as not an explicit statement, but a series of perspectives, like a number of discrete walks across a mountain range, which will perhaps allow an idea of the whole to emerge. With, with this, he also notes that forcing an object of attention uh, to explicitness changes its, the very nature of the object. Uh, so not only do you get lost in this maze of mirrors, but you're changing even the nature of the thing that you're trying to get to the essence of. Uh, quote, forcing things into explicitness changes their nature completely. Uh, so that in some such cases, what we come to think we know certainly is not is in fact not truly known at all, end quote. Uh, the above, it should be noted, holds true for many of the important things in life. Uh, quote, what's true of making love and going to sleep is also true of things less physical. For example, attempts to be natural, to love, to be wise, or to be innocent and self-unseeing are self-defeating. The best things in life hide from the full glare of focused attention. They refuse our will, end quote. Uh, moving on to some more practical notions, the attention spotlight only clarifies so much as it isolates, uh, meaning we may see something clear, but we're robbed of its context. So again, this this explicit focus on something, it may bring about some uh, some good, even if it's still all self-referential, uh, but note that we're isolating it from its context. This is knowledge, but only of a certain kind. Uh, to see something truly, one must see both it and its context. Uh, quote, if the detached, highly focused attention of the left hemisphere is brought to bear on living things and not later resolved into the whole picture by right hemisphere attention, which yields depth and context, it is destructive, end quote. Uh, it should be noted that the best art is not explicit. It forces the viewer to grasp at what is implicit within it. In speaking of Homeric s- symbols, uh, Karen Yee writes, quote, that they cannot be seen through as the visible sign of an invisible order, not as an element of symbolism, but as a transparent part of the world, end quote. So all of that to say, explicit thought does bring some things to the table, but noting that circular structure uh, that I mentioned at the beginning, it should start as implicit. The explicit can unpack a lot of what is hidden. It can unfold it. But ultimately, we must transcend this explicit, uh, decontextualized grasping of uh, whatever object has our attention. Uh, the primacy of affect he doesn't get as much into as the primacy of the implicit. Uh, affect being simply that uh, the, the things that are behind the cognitive content of our thought process, the things that are driving us, the things that are um, beyond the intuitive, uh, or sorry, uh, beyond the uh, cognitive processes. So emotions, uh, he notes, there, there's been quite a few studies that have shown that these emotions do not follow cognitive assessment. It's vice versa. Uh, our emotions inform our cognitive assessment. Uh, assessment. 
the intuitive assessment of the whole is what comes is what we actually consider uh, before cognitive processes come into play. That is, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes before we actually are aware of thinking clearly about it. Um, any cognition at all is dependent on the disposition towards the world. Uh, note, this isn't just emotions, though it includes emotions. Uh, it is a disposition, a way of being in the world. Quote, feeling is not just an add-on, a flavored coating for thought. It is the heart of our being, and reason emanates from that central core of the emotions uh, in an attempt to limit and direct them rather than the other way around. Um, uh, listeners may recall from After Virtue Hume's positioning of ethics within the passions, and I do wonder if this would be something that McGilchrist would at least somewhat nod in approval towards. Uh, he ends this part with uh, with a bit of a warning that there will be a constant temptation to look at the relationship between cognition and affect from cognition's perspective. And he says that this is actually backwards. We should be looking at cognition from, uh, from affect's perspective, uh, that this is what we start with, and therefore this is what we need to end with. Uh, and from there, I'll pass it on to Brevin. All right. So I have uh, what I think is the second coolest section, the... Uh, primacy of the implicit is the coolest in this chapter, I think, but the primacy of the unconscious will, which is where I'll be picking it up, is, I think, the second coolest. So in this, he starts with the framing story of the famous Benjamin Lebet, or Lebet, who knows, with these, you know, French people, the cheese-eating surrender monkeys, who can tell what their last name is, but if I, you know, insist on something, they'll probably just give up and let me have my way. But anyway, talking about the famous experiment uh, which more or less appears to show a uh, subconscious or an unconscious movement, something like 0.2 seconds before the actual intention of an action is realized, which would suggest that underneath uh, our conscious will, there there are unconscious forces at work. And he goes down from here to you know, talk a little bit about Freud and the idea of the unconscious. What is the unconscious? Obviously, there are, you know, sort of stronger and weaker versions of how much the unconsciousness affects us. Uh, he doesn't go into it. This brings up questions of uh, free will, obviously. I think we'll probably circle back to that in our discussion. He then goes into, you know, so obviously the an, an unconscious mind is more the realm of the right hemisphere than of the left hemisphere as the left hemisphere is nonverbal. And a lot of what we mean by un unconscious mind is really something more like uh, nonverbal or, or at least part of it. Um, but he brings up the interesting point, which is that LeBay's experiment is only a problem for ourselves and our idea of our conscious will. If we consider the unconscious to be separate from us somehow, uh, he says on page 188 quote, why should we not be our unconscious as well as our conscious selves? LeBay's experiment does not tell us that we do not choose to initiate an action. It just tells us that we have to widen our concept of who we are to include our unconscious selves. The difficulty seems to arise, as so often, because of language, which is principally the left hemisphere's way of construing the world. It will be objected that what we mean by words such as will, intend, choose, is that the process is conscious. If it's not conscious, then we did not will it to happen. We did not intend it. It was not our choice. The fact that it is clear to all of us that these days that our unconscious wishes, intentions, and choices can play a huge part in our lives seems not to be noticed, end quote. In, in the next section, he then goes into sort of a capping argument, which is that both thought and its expression originate in the right hemisphere. And he 
does this by pointing out the research of a guy named David McNeil, who has, uh, quote, for years painstakingly videotaped human interactions and analyzed the, the relationship between gesture language and what is spoken, end quote. And the point of interest that he comes to is that uh, gestures slightly anticipate speech. And so the conclusion, and there's a couple few, uh, a couple further points under this, but the conclusion that McNeil and uh, McGill Chris supports eventually come to is that gestures actually reflect the nonverbal articulation of the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere and, and then waits for the left hemisphere to articulate the precise words that go with that feeling. So from there, we get both thought, which is represented by the gesture, and expression, the words, which are generated by the left hemisphere, but at a slower pace than the direct line that the gestures get from the right hemisphere. So in that sense, the right hemisphere is the primary and has primacy over the left hemisphere since articulation uh, ultimately and expression originate from there. So Miguel Chris says that temporally, logically, and, and ontologically, the right hemisphere world grounds that of the left. Then he goes into one final point, uh, which, or well, final point in this half of the chapter, rather, so it's not exactly a final point, but uh, talking about representation and presentation. And this ties in a, a little bit to what Stephen was talking about earlier and what we've been talking about this whole time as the right hemisphere having the idea of the world in context and the left hemisphere focusing on more abstract principles. And it's an experiment, uh, again, with people who uh, they uh, subdue one hemisphere of the brain at a time and, and see how people react in different contexts. And basically, they give people a non-logical uh, set of premises. Its major premise is that all monkeys climb trees. Minor premise, the porcupine is a monkey. Implied conclusion, the porcupine climbs trees. Uh, and he notes with annoyance that the Russian uh, researchers who did this were not aware that some porcupines do actually climb trees. But for the purposes of the experiment, neither the researchers nor the participants had any reason to think that porcupines actually climbed, climbed trees. Regardless, with both hemispheres activated, the individuals, the participants were able to recognize that this is uh, an incorrect statement. The porcupine doesn't climb, it runs on the ground, it's, and it's not a monkey either. Uh, however, when the left hemisphere was subdued and it was merely the right hemisphere's analysis of the, the situations of the same individual, uh, which the left hemisphere, uh, which I'll say what the, what the answer was in just a moment, when someone with only the right hemisphere active is asked if the syllogism is true, uh, she replies, quote, how can it climb trees? It's not a monkey. It's wrong here, end quote. And then on the other hand, if the if the right hemisphere is subdued and only the left hemisphere is active, it will find the statement perfectly logical. And it will conclude that, quote, the porcupine climbs trees because it is a monkey. When the experimenter asks, but is the porcupine a monkey? She replies that she knows it is not, end quote. So in other words, the ultimate conclusion from this is that the left hemisphere focuses on the surface level system logic of the three statements and it's repeated in various iterations talking about like trees and balsa wood or northern lights uh appearing in uganda uh, but the end conclusion is that while the right hemisphere prioritizes what it learns from its experience what it what the real things that actually exist 
the left hemisphere pulls everything into the abstract and only works with it as sort of a system of signs, as a structure that has no real relation to reality, or at least no necessary relation to reality. Um, and at that point, he leaves us to uh, continue the rest of the chapter in uh, a future episode of the podcast. To be continued. To be continued. I, I did like how when I was reading the uh, affect section, I was starting to think, okay, how, how does this work with the unconscious mind? Because if, if our cognitive uh, processes are being influenced by something deeper, that sounds like the unconscious. And then immediately right away, he gets mm-hmm. into the unconscious and starts talking about how that actually has, um, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot, a lot, a lot more right hemisphere primacy or that the right hemisphere is a lot of the, more of the, uh, the unconscious experience. Yeah, I mean, what what this did, sort of like the previous chapter did for Heidegger, is sort of a, I mean, obviously, it's a thing that I would want to look into more deeply, but a, just sort of a, a rethinking of the idea of, of the subconscious. Because as, you know, a good person who's been taught to think Freud was a nutcase, which he was, but mm-hmm. the whole unconscious thing sounds kind of suspicious. And, you know, I'm, you know, got to defend free will against the Calvinists and their and their <laughs> uh, predestination and stuff. Um and and even on the although I do have a a, a, a quibble on his use of uh, the Labette or Labay experiment because I, I know for a fact that after that there have been many critiques of that experiment um, and many uh, before um, this next edition of the book was released so I'm surprised he didn't acknowledge that they exist and that many people have arguments hmm. however most people use the Labay Labette experiment in the context of free will arguments. And that's not what he's doing here. Um, so that, that might be why he felt free to uh, ignore them. I, as I recall, like the time difference isn't as dramatic as uh, was originally stated. And there's a couple like more programmatic issues. Like if you intend to do something, but then reverse yourself at the last second, is it the same thing as intending it? Is it just like a false signal? You know, various, mm-hmm. various other things with it, but his reframing of the unconscious as or rather the um, the right hemisphere as, as more of this different kind of attention that's less dependent on us, like consciously thinking words that are then willed into actions really makes the subconscious seem like less threatening and voodoo-y. I don't hmm. know. Yeah, well said. I, I do recall uh, Dave Bentley Hart actually critiquing, I think it was a little bit experience, uh, experiments quite harshly. Um, and his kind of conclusion was that, yeah, this just in, sometimes your body does stuff that you're not consciously aware of. Like when I, you know, <laughs> like when the doctor hits my leg with, uh, with a hammer, I don't like intentionally raise my leg. Like, is this news? Are we concerned about this? Um, yeah. And it, especially given the whole, like, well, and this this all makes sense the because in some cases I think it was what about a seventy percent uh, time that had the point two uh, second delay from the unconscious experience experience telling the person to move their hand and then them cognitively thinking I will move my hand I think it was about seventy percent which actually goes very much for McGillchrist's point that a lot of times the left right hemispheres are more um, I'm not sure how to pronounce it inhibitory yeah, yeah. inhibitory uh, where Hmm. Their their main function is to stop the other, not to um, that's interesting. Not to kind of push their own thing forward. I mean, obviously, it is to push their own thing forward, but it's also as inhibition. Inhibition. Um, so yeah. for the left to say, actually, no, I don't really want to do that. 
strikes me as a perfectly uh, reasonable kind of middle ground between, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on under the surface, but it doesn't mean that under the surface has the only say. Although it mm. seems that Mill Gilchrist, if anything, would kind of say, yeah, but maybe we'd be better off if we just kind of let the under the surface part do most of the talking. Well, that's not yeah. literal talking, but the the nonverbal gesturing. If we were just all gesticulating wildly at all times, we would be in a better place. I wonder if American Sign Language, which one that falls under, left or uh, left or right? That's a you know that would be probably uh, left, but well, that would be an interesting neuroscience question uh, yeah. to 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 look into how that activates. Um, no, uh, but the last thing that I just wanted to to mention on the un- unconscious um, is then that also, and to be fair, I've like never done anything with oh now i'm forgetting his face uh oh with a jungian psychoanalysis or whatever and shadow mm-hmm. selves and blah 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 blah. but again th- his way of talking about the unconscious in, in, in a way that makes it much less i don't know threatening to our free will yeah threat well not even threatening. just weirdly magical yeah yeah less less weirdly magical and and more just like a part to, that encompasses part of the we necessarily that, you know, in a left brain mechanistic, you know, I will only do things if I decide to do them and think specifically that I'm willing to do them. And, and, and that is the whole of my being, uh, which is, you know, if you think about it for more than two seconds, a denial of the reality with things such, you know, you know, things that you can't will yourself to do like, Hey, quick, relax. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that makes the whole like whatever Jungian thing, uh, uh, you know, like dealing with your shadow self or reconciling with your uh, subconscious in that way. Um, although I'm not sure if Jung actually meant it that way, but um, it's like, oh, breakthrough, something to go look into uh, when when I have time. Not reading oodles and oodles of grad stuff, but <laughs> in two years when you have time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, did you have any other thoughts about the primary of the? Sorry, the primacy of the implicit, because I think that was the other big one. I, I especially you bringing up kind of the telling yourself to relax. Uh, I so one of one of my favorite things uh, from C.S. Lewis actually was uh, his discussion on Christ's command to uh, uh, to kind of die, die to yourself that trying to save yourself you will lose yourself, and him mm. saying that this is this is related to kind of a lot of the just the implicit truths all around us uh, that trying to force yourself to fall asleep uh, you'll find yourself you know being you know, tossing and turning all night, trying to uh, announcing to the group, hello, let's have a good conversation is a great way to kill the conversation or trying to be original when telling a story is a great way to do a terrible story. But if you just kind of let go and try to tell a story, doesn't if you don't care about it being original, you'll actually find that you tell a pretty good story. Hmm. Um, and I think there really is something to be said for that. And I think that this uh, attempt at honing in on these important rich experiences and trying to unravel them and find out exactly how they tick. It really is a good way to deconstruct them. And I, I mean, I've even noticed that uh, for those of you who may not know, uh, Brevin and I do enjoy uh, playing RPGs. And I found that the best or most of the time, the best sessions I've ever ran were the first ones because I didn't know exactly what to expect. And I was just kind of open to the opportunity but then afterwards, trying to recreate the experience, trying to kind of own in and try to figure out exactly what made the first one so good was actually a pretty good way at kind of making them a subpar experience. Mm. Um, and I mean, just in general, I think that this has a lot of practical 
uh, effect. Victor Frankl brings this up um, in uh, oh, um, Man's Search for Meaning. Oddly enough, uh, him talking about uh, sexual experiences and his him advising clients that were dealing with um, uh, erectile dysfun- dysfunction. Him just saying, like, just stop caring about it and you'll find that you'll probably be okay. And a lot of his clients actually reporting like, yeah, the moment I stopped caring was the moment everything kind of worked out. Uh, so I, I think it's just kind of an important thing to, uh, to keep in mind. And as much as I'm digging a lot of the kind of more theoretical uh, philosophical stuff that's coming along with this and really looking forward to him really diving into a lot of the societal critiques, this is, uh, I think this is just a brilliant piece of practical advice that we can all uh, take away. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. Uh, the one one piece of uh, practical advice that I would not take from this chapter is his use of the word semi-transparent like eight times. It frustrated me so much because I knew that there had to be a synonym that was a better word for semi-transparent. Even um, semi-opaque. Like, just go with the opposite of transparent. Yeah, something like that. Like, like you know, uh, like uh, translucid or whatever. Like, the, the translucent. The, Mirror dimly. Were, yeah, there were several like options that he could have gone with instead of saying that like eight times. And I was like, "Come on, man, you're 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 real frustrating me here." Um, maybe he was maybe he was doing that thing we found out in the second chapter where uh, he his his he was trying to figure out synonyms, but his left brain was owning in too much on the mm, the very mm. narrow set of synonyms, and his right brain <laughs> was being actively shut down by the left brain. Bet you that so, was it. So they just weren't coming to mind. Oh. Exactly. Oh boy. Um, but I, I will say just uh, briefly that I, I very much enjoyed the idea of um, depth as a uh, fuller, I mean, I don't want to, a, a different view of reality than a clear view of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the idea that when you see something clearly, it's necessarily out of context. Uh, it's, it's necessarily an impoverished view. It's a specific view but it's an impoverished view of, of a larger whole, like the example of a painting of, or a, a picture of a book and a handkerchief, you know, in the middle of rolling hills. Uh, at what point are you close enough to see it clearly when it's a distant dot that you can't see what it is or when you can recognize it just a little bit or when you can like microscopically see the grains of, uh, you know, dust on the uh, uh, threads of the handkerchief. Um, mm-hmm. Uh but the other thing that it made me think of uh, was uh, my wife actually wrote a very interesting paper on Shakespeare and Midsummer Night's Dream and talking about the play within the play that the amateur actors put on for the nobility, uh, for the uh, noble pairings of various lovers or, you know, soon to be lovers. Um, and uh, his discussion of drama talking about how, like, you can be shaken from acting uh, by... Uh, by bad acting that that there's a um you have to forget that you're acting or, or sorry you have to forget that the actors are acting to truly enjoy uh the experience and what uh my wife writes about in her paper is uh talking about how there's an incredible amount of depth to the play w- within the play because what the actors in the play the uh amateur actors acting out this play is that they aren't acting out of play in a, in a traditional sense, but rather they're doing what she calls make-believe. They're doing the equivalent to what kids do when they play house. It's make-believe and it's acting in roles, but with a kind of seriousness, with a kind of uh, like 
lack of self-consciousness that you're trying to make what you're acting out into a reality, which makes the comedy of the scene because they're like, I am, you know, whatever my name is and I'm the wall, but don't worry. I'm not an actual wall. I'm just pretending that I'm a wall. And they're like, Oh, okay. Okay. Good, good, good. Um, but, but there's this whole, the, the, the whole scene creates this situation where you have the audience watching actors who are acting as an audience, watching actors, acting as people, acting as actors, acting to a story. And it's just like four or five layers deep when you think about it. And the whole drama thing as, as depth, or well, I guess art in general as depth and the semi-transparentness of reality was just like, ah, things clicking together. This is why, you know, the canon is good. And this is why good art is good is because it, it has things like that, um, that, you know, that you could just go deeper and deeper into. Yeah. I, I like the one quote he gave, um, uh, of Merlot Ponty's, uh, that we do not see paintings as much as we see according to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there is this depth that any good art will bring about that it doesn't just try to own in on the pure essence of a thing, uh, whatever that even means. It doesn't try to just provide a clarity, a window into what this thing is, but rather tries to show this thing as a life. Um, and like you said, I think any good piece of art will do that. It will not only try to capture the essence of a thing, but it will try to show what the thing is in context with its world. Indeed. 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 Well, that was surprisingly snappy for uh, for Master and Emissary. Well, it was we half have... after, so it, it actually might be long, considering it was only that much. <laughs> Touche. We did what we could. We did what we could, but I, uh, I that that was a lot easier to keep all of that in my head uh, mm-hmm. than it than it normally is to keep a a full uh, chapter. A full chapter is just a little bit of a slog. Uh, but speaking of a slog. Uh, Russian novels, am I right? Oh, but Russian Steven. novels, you are right. Yep, Go okay, good transition. Okay, so my article is uh, Woke America is a Russian novel by Peter Zavodnik. Zavodnik, Zavodnik, I think it is. Uh, he describes teaching a uh, a class, a college class on Russian literature using Ivan Turgenev's Fathers and Sons. Uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, and Nikolai Chernyevsky's What is to be Done. Uh, And he looks back on it and becomes more troubled as he observes uh, the characters within these three novels. Uh, One of them, uh, I apologize to any of our Russian listeners. I'm sure sure there are many of you, and I'm sure that I'm going to be butchering these names. Uh, Russian listener, that, that there's only one, and they may or may not be Russian. Okay, now that's a good point. Or uh, rather, they both are and are not Russian. Ooh, that's... I, I don't think that's true, but um, we'll move on. Uh, Yevgeny uh, Bazarov, uh, he's one of the sons in uh, Fathers and Sons, and to him, the whole of Russia is completely rotten, and anyone who can't see that is either an idiot or a knave, and the only solution is to raise everything. Uh, I question our listeners, uh, does that sound familiar? Uh, that he believes that there that if a country is rotten to the core there's nothing to be gained from trying to preserve the old order and everything must go um and anyone who does not see as he does uh and this is most people within russia they are simply roadblocks or enemies uh they're not really people uh they're not wholly human uh that's a that's a quote by the way don't accuse me of plagiarism please i'm about to go to grad school i can't do that uh and it 
he he starts so the author of this uh, this article starts drawing comparisons with a lot of the um a lot of the movements today i uh, quote what matters is the nature of both radicalisms marxist and post-marxist is the same mean-spirited anti-intellectual reductionist to the extreme bazarov and his present-day analog are both freighted with a totalizing faith convinced of the unimpeachability of their cause and trapped inside a windowless cell created for them by other people uh they cannot escape because they do not know their prisoners end quote uh he moves on to dostoevsky's raskolnikov uh within crime and punishment uh it's interesting because he he believes that the only thing, uh, quote, he believes that the only thing stopping him from becoming uh, the man he is meant to be is money, which leads him down the slippery slope of rationalizations that he tells himself. If, if I have more money, I can complete my studies. If I complete my studies, I can become an important thinker. If I become an important thinker, the world will thank me for whatever sins I'm about to commit uh, or I committed to become that person uh, before he slaughters uh, his landlady and her half sister. Um, so, we also see uh, some analogies here. Uh, the author of this uh, article, just like, let me look that up again because I need to stop calling him the author. Uh, Zavodnik. Uh, Zavodnik compares him to a lot of alt-right thinkers uh, or a lot of uh, disenfranchised, angry young men of 21st century America. Uh, he lists out a, a very amusing list. Uh, the alt-writer, the neo-Nazi, the consumer and trafficker of mythologies coursing through the QAnon uh, Gab R. The Donald subreddit Fantasyland. Uh, and he's again troubled by these comparisons uh, that in pre-Soviet Union, post-surf uh, liberation Russia, these characters seem to be embodied in these pieces of literature. Uh, lastly, he brings up uh, Vera Pavlovna, uh, who is the heroine of What Is to Be Done, uh, which is Chernevsky's uh, response to Bazarov. Uh, so what Bazarov destroys, he raises down uh, because Russia is rotten to the core. Uh, it appears that uh, Vera Pavlovna uh, builds up. Uh, she creates this uh, new future that is uh, with you know complete independence, uh, associating this with uh, kind of the, the modern feminist movement. And it is indeed a very inspiring book. Uh, the the author, dang it, what what is the author's name? Zavodnik uh, says that it's uh, it's weirdly optimistic. In fact, it inspires Lenin, who quotes it in uh, his 1902 political pamphlet that, or in fact, names it after the novel. Uh, so we have all these characters, and uh, Zavodnik becomes increasingly disturbed by how uh, how these characters are echoing. Um, in fact, starts noticing uh, certain similarities uh, between now and then where uh for example one way of uh escaping being kind of signaled as an enemy as a uh, kind of an enemy of a uh, modern movement is to accuse someone else uh noting that that was kind of a common strategy within uh the soviet era if you were under scrutiny you could avoid scrutiny by just accusing someone else um he goes on i uh, there is I, I, I'm pleased to see that he, he is very careful to say, like, look, history doesn't exactly repeat itself. Uh, these are just interesting ob observations that these sort of characters are appearing time and time again. Uh, but I think he does bring up a good point in that there should there is something rather terrifying about the fact that we just kind of take for granted uh, that uh, that these sort of upheavals will never happen to us. And I think 
it is a thing to remember in the uh, tumultuous political times uh, that are now uh, to perhaps be not be overly optimistic. America has plenty of problems. Russia had plenty of problems before Soviet Union, but also not be too careful to uh, to tear things down. Uh, I think that's about that. I, I really like this article because it is so even handed. Um, it seems to be critiquing both far le- left and far right uh, ideologies and saying that both of these uh, can be encapsulated by uh, 18th or uh, 19th century Russian literature and both are heavily critiqued. Very nice. Um, I liked how, yeah, no, no, I, I agree with that. It is what I like about Dostoevsky in particular, but also what, what, what this guy does is sort of brings ideologies and how they uh, infest or infect people that it's not enough to just be on the right side of history and have the correct ideology, whatever that is, assuming that could possibly even be a thing, but rather that they can sort of consume you like a parasite and, and, and consume people. And that's what he sees in these authors and their characters. And then by extension, he sees uh, different ideology, ideologies making parasites of people in our society. Yeah, it's interesting. He cites one of the uh, the main characters, uh, Bazarov, uh, who kind of thinks that he's above all these mundane, petty human needs. Um, and then he he returns home. He falls in love with a uh, a beautiful widow, and then eventually, when she rejects him, uh, his his heart is broken, and he actually intentionally contracts typhus and dies. Um, and he uh, here's here's a quote. Bazarov might like to pretend that he's a radical, that he's bigger than romantic love or bourgeois convention, that he's a man of history. But he's not. He is incapable of that. The hope that Turgenev seems to be hinting at is that no one is, or at least most of us are not. And this is a good thing. End quote. I'm, that's an excellent quote. I'm very hesitant to sacrifice the amazing transition that how the assumption that like having a family and raising a family and that being a value is like a bourgeois thing to have which it is or which is a an implicit argument from many people and that is the perfect transition to what i'm going to talk about however i do have to say steven how do you pronounce this author's name again let me scroll back up zavodnik i think and and how do you pronounce the uh name of uh the main character's best friend in the acclaimed uh and widely known and best show of all time anime uh show code geass suzaku Oh my God, you said it right. <laughs> Ladies Amazing. and gentlemen, you don't understand how long it took me to figure out how to pronounce this name. I was, I was practicing it. I kid you not for hours, 10 hours straight. Yep. Yes. Yep. It was, it was, uh, it was a struggle. Hey, but maybe you're finally over the hill. Congratulations. I, I, I did. So. I did not expect you to actually get that right, but I didn't either. It's well still done. kind of a crapshoot whenever I do, but I think I'm getting to the point where I'm like above 50%. Yeah. No, I, 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 I would say so. Um, all right, but speaking of uh, the role of the family and bourgeois thingamabobs, uh, mine is very snappy this week. Uh, the reason is is because it is a video lecture uh, hosted by a academic who I met personally. I went to, uh, um, for lack of better terms, or actually these might be the perfect terms, a libertarian summer camp uh, my sophomore year of, of college, and, and she was one of the, the speakers, and she's quite an interesting scholar in that she is now actually a Catholic convert that happened after I met her. Um, But she's also a, uh, um, a reformed 
progressive is what she called herself. Um, so libertarian leaning and all that, but also given the reformed progressive and the uh, uh, Catholicness, she's very concerned with uh, particularly things like pregnancy and family formation and various uh, pathologies that are developed inside the medical industry in, in terms of medicalizing things that don't need to be medicalized. And anyway, she has very interesting scholarship. Uh, her name is Dr. Lauren Hall, and she's great. Uh, but she just, uh, the, the, this short article is just a summary of, of her lecture given talking about uh, some perspectives on the family from, ver from the view of various political ideologies. Um, and she starts with an extreme one, which is that of a, a communist society, which uh, from a Marxist perspective, communist manifesto, want to abolish the family. It's, you know, it's the building block of bourgeois culture, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it's as seen in the previous in the previous article, it's, you know, one of the first targets, and one must ask, why is the family the first target of the communist or one of them? Um, but that's a question for another time. But uh, Dr. Hall discusses the uh, early ideas of the kibbutzim, the socialist collectives in Israel, and their initial practice of raising children collectively. And these children were raised in like a group daycare rather than by their biological parents. That was their experience growing up. But when those kids became adults and had children of their own, they just all as a group began to phase out the collective childbearing experience. And instead, in, in, in various ways, and, and she goes into more details in her lecture, but in various ways, the sort of more individualistic, or you might say capitalistic, if you're a communist, of course, method of raising and orienting and interacting as a family begin to reassert itself. And again, spontaneously, given that this is a self-contained uh, socialist kibbutzim with a generation that has been raised in the re-educated ways, sort of like you could only be stupid enough to think that that kind of a thing would work if you've never experienced it yourself. In the end, a much more normal method of uh, family formation or, you know, typical uh, something leaning towards the nuclear family or you know, some sort of uh, traditional family structure, but then with, you know, m maybe you have more relatives than you actually would have uh, all your all of your daycare buddies. Um, and uh, I don't have much more to say beyond that, except for uh, it's fascinating because uh, Dr. Hall's research draws on um, some other uh, thinkers that have very interesting and complicated ideas, but basically they draw on evolutionary psychology in order to argue for various political science conclusions, much in a similar way that the master and his emissary argues, but um, but almost for certain less rigorous, but just arg arguing that certain tendencies tend to arise um, in, in humans and in human societies based on pre-existing biological functions and that we defy these biological realities at our own risk and they will begin to reassert themselves in various ways should we try to deny them one of them being in this case the bond between a mother and her child and a father and his child so some consilience with the master and his emissary uh also families are great uh we should not abolish them that would be a bad idea and well i mean really if so i'm a catholic and if all of the, you know, all the secular folks, they decide to abolish the family and stop having kids and stuff, I mean, it doesn't really matter because we'll just, you know, outbaby them and take over the world. Actually, if you recall back to uh, a podcast a long time ago, the um, it, if you just do straight uh, trends as, 
as they are now, which is an example why you can't say, you know, oh, religion's declining at this rate, it'll be gone in 20 years because things don't decline at a constant rate ever, uh, or at least not forever. Uh, but if you do population trends in the US consistent for like 50 years or something, basically you have the Amish being the majority in like, I don't know, 2075 or something, which would honestly kind of be epic. I, I would be like very much down for that. That would be pretty cool. I mean, we would experience such a surplus in quality furniture. I don't think I can complain with that. Ye gods, and so many barns just every day. Barn, so, barn, barn, barn. <laughs> so many barns. I mean, and when you think about it, with... Would there uh, be nobles, though? Ooh, ooh. I hope so. I, I, You know what? I, I hope no one would be allowed to read, because that might solve the problem with reading. Hey! Hey! No, uh, but I do wonder if the uh, increase in the number of barns in an Amish population is... Uh, is um exponential or not because that would be a fascinating study that really would be exponential farmhouses i love it Mm. Mm. uh but speaking of exponential farmhouses uh steven do you have a rant for us i do indeed and i believe it is related to a very interesting uh i think was it like a twitter thread or something to that effect that you sent uh you sent the the friend group uh I'm actually looking it up right now. It is related to a uh, a new translation of scripture that uh, is rather strange, shall we say? Uh, it's uh, it's 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 excellent. I love it so much. Uh, major Christian publisher Lifeway teamed up with a website called Sunday Cool uh, to produce a devotional for the youth, and it includes some. Uh, I'm, I, I don't want to say quality, but uh, incredible, shall we say, uh, biblical translations for uh, Gen Z to show that they are really hip and and with the use. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite of all times, uh, favorite passages passages of all times is uh, the first section of uh, uh, John um, chapter one. Beautiful introduction, uh, very mysterious, very uh, poetic, uh, and they translated uh, all the mystery and all the uh, uh, glory and splendor as, since day uno, there was Cap G. Big J was chilling with Cap G. And Big J was Cap G. Uh, John 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, famous Psalm, uh, Psalm 119.11, uh, I believe it's something to the effect of, if translated correctly, uh, it is, uh, I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Uh, they translate it, quote, I got your holy scripts padlocked in my chest thumper. Romans 1.16, uh, an interesting, or a, uh, a verse that has been cited often uh, as, uh, you know, kind of a topic of hot debate within the so- soteriology uh, sphere. Quote, not served uh, by these scripts, because Cap G be given that get out of jail free card to the whole fam, end quote. You know... Project Gutenberg, it, or not Project Gutenberg, that's an internet phenomenon, but uh, the Gutenberg Printing Press was an interesting uh, project. It was an interesting idea. I think if we just take some transcripts from this uh, this Gen Z, uh, the, the word according to Gen Z, if uh, those of you might, uh, are, those of you who are curious about that, uh, if we just took some of these translations back to the creators of the Gutenberg Printing Press, told them what was going to happen in 400 years, I think we could all agree that we can just uh, you know, shore it up, destroy it, burn it to the ground, or uh, as I told uh, the friend group, uh, put it in whatever secret uh, closet or 
a storage unit that the Vatican has that has the cryogenically corpse of Walt Disney and the original Holy Grail uh, and leave it there for all times. 100%. Could not agree more. You gods. <laughs> uh, it's like the only thing that I can think of is that Gen Z is the generation which has their brains and, you know, speaking from experience, their brains so rotted by irony just to the absolute extreme that this could like maybe loop back around and be okay or, 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 or like be amusing enough to like, you know, keep your attention for two seconds. That's um, the only thing I can think is it, similar to like the Lolcats Bible um, hmm. where it's just kind of amusing. You don't take it seriously, but I mean, it seems that they're actually trying to take this devotional semi seriously. Well, I mean the like they have to be joke. Like they have to be joking. They uh, like, I just hope to God that no one could actually do this unironically. Ha- the, like I said, I, I feel like it has to be somewhat in jest, kind of, but it seems it has like to be somewhat tongue in cheek. But there's like too much work into it. And also, no one on their team, and I, I, I looked at their team, no one on their team is young enough to like really do this well. So even if they're trying to go for the full irony thing, it'll still be like, okay, boomer, that was funny, whatever. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think that's correct. I just, I, I'll, this is just another, not that I needed more convincing, but that I do not want to go anywhere near the world of any kind of product that will ever be in a Christian bookstore. Cause that yep. is just like a hell world to produce things and work in that sphere. Like I, there is zero things about that that sound appealing to me. Yeah. You know, I have a lot of fond memories of uh, a lot of Christian fiction and whatnot. Uh, but in general, Christian bookstores, the, the content that they had, uh, yeah, I don't think we're really missing out on much, to, to be completely honest. Yeah, definitely not a whole lot of good content there. Uh, but speaking of good content, uh, my rant this week is about uh, brewing, <laughs> beer brewing, some good content. Hey. Uh, so I just uh, recently moved to a new town, and I decided to get some new habits. You know, like make a clean start as one does when one moves. Uh, some of the basics, eating better, get back into running, that kind of thing. But one that I like very intentionally committed to and backed myself into a corner on by putting time and money into it that would be wasted if I didn't continue uh, is beer brewing. And I have a cousin via my wife's family who's an excellent fellow and just like a consummate beer man. And uh, one thing that I so appreciate about him and his lifestyle is the degree to which it's self-creating and not in not in like a narrow individualistic sense but in like the way or at least i think the ways in which humans are co-creators with god you know being the one species that's capable of of doing that uh and you know like baking one's own bread brewing one's own beer building one's own house there's all there's something just like very very attractive and fulfilling about the idea of being a creator as opposed to a consumer and you know insert obligatory free market efficiency alienation of labor is useful and efficient net benefits blah 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 but regardless i I wanted to get in on that game of being creative and productive uh so i started brewing and the first batch i think should go to bottling tomorrow or the day after i i I need to check it but as but and, and then here's like the actual rent part uh but as a byproduct of sort of like the mini high that i've gotten from brewing a few batches is that i'm i'm realizing that you can ferment like everything and now that's like all that i want to do so the the, like my entire search history is just say like how to make kombucha in different ways how to reuse yeast which which veggies are the best pickled etc etc 
so uh, TLDR, if you partake in uh, the uh, process of creation, uh, be careful because uh, it's infectious. Careful because it may stare back. N- n- mm. No. No, no, it won't. It's not going to stare back. No. Okay. Sorry about I that. I reject your world. I don't know. That's from something. What is that from? I reject your world? No, yeah. it's Actually, it's from several things, and I don't want to mention what they are. <sighs> Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Well, we are didn't manage to make it any shorter, so let's put yeah. our listener out of their misery. We did what we could, everyone. Indeed. Uh, so for everyone who did what they could here at the Problem with Reading podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. Um, a moment of silence for Sam. And uh, we'll see you next time. Stay, stay frosty, cowboy, space cowboy. What? <laughs> ba 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 Enlightenment. Uh, also, by the way, the whole demon leprechaun thing, I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you know what that's a reference to? No, not a clue. Uh, nothing. I specifically checked that it's not a reference to anything by accident either. Wow, really? Yes. So you're just gonna. You're, you, so the the idea is that people are gonna hear that and be like, "Oh man, I wonder what that is." Exactly, and then they'll get to mm-hmm. the end credit scene and they'll realize, "Oh, actually, it was all just a pointless search the whole time." Clever. Oh, that's deep, man. That's like I know. a metaphor or something. Damn. And I heard that's of the right brain, so uh, must be good. So it must be right. Over and over and over again. Yeah, I think that is a pretty clear indicator that he. Uh,